0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton, and I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my own PhD. Uh, Today we'll be talking to Eric Vanden Eichel about his new book on the Magi, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, let me introduce our guest for today. Eric Vanden Eichel is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Ferrum College in Virginia. He received his PhD in Judaism and Christianity uh, from antiquity from Marquette University in Milwaukee, and he also holds master's degrees from Marquette and the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. University in Atlanta. Dr. Vannon Eichel's primary area of research in is early Christian apocryphal literature with a special focus on texts and traditions about infancies and childhoods of Jesus and Mary, uh, Jesus's mother. He has previously written, uh, but their faces were all looking up author and reader in the Proto-Evangelium in, of James and co-edited sex, violence, and early Christian texts, which is Certainly one way to grab the attention of audiences. Uh, In his free time, uh, Eric uh, tells me that he enjoys making beer, running, and woodworking, presumably not all at the same time. (laughs) But on top of all this, Eric is joining us today from his home in Virginia to discuss the publication of his most recent book, The Magi, with the subtitle, Who They Were, How They've Been Remembered, and Why They Still Fascinate, and it was published with uh, Fortress Press last year in 2022. Eric, it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the New Books Network. Thank you, Rob. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: And thanks for that introduction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you tell me you enjoy beer making, so I have to open the discussion with a question about that. What you've been brewing lately, other than this book, and how you got started making your own beer?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I brew pretty much everything. Lately, I've been taking a little bit of a break from it. Uh, brewed a li- I brewed maybe a little bit too much during the COVID years, um, but uh, yeah, my my favorite stuff to brew is usually IPAs of some sort. Uh, I've done Belgians and um, you know uh, brown ales, those sorts of things. Things. Um, and I got started making my own beer because somebody told me that it would save money. Uh, and so I was a graduate student and I said, well, you know, I drink a lot of beer. So I, I, um, I decided it would it would be a good hobby to try. It does not save money, though. That's a that's okay. a lie. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, an absolute lie. It does make good beer, but it doesn't
1: save it doesn't save you any money. Either um, way, a perfect yeah. monastic tradition to brew your that's own right. beer. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, uh, let's turn to the subject of your book, the Magi, and uh, I have to say, from the outset, having read it, uh, uh, having read it, um, I really enjoyed it as an example of sort of public facing scholarship on a subject of immediate interest to multiple audiences. So, uh, by that I mean uh, it, even late persons will have some familiarity with magi and even persons that don't go to church Mm -hmm. would uh, Mm -hmm. have some familiarity with the magi from nativity scenes that are ubiquitous in our uh, shared american context if you will um and uh while i was reading it i never felt like you sacrificed your analysis or bit your tongue or withheld any critiques or the truth from your audience so uh, it was great in that respect that uh, uh, scholars and general audiences uh, will both be able to learn uh, things uh, from and come away with a better understanding, even if it's more complicated, perhaps, about the Magi. And speaking of the Magi, uh, uh, we have to say a quick word about the pronunciation of that term. I think most church people will probably be familiar with Magi, but as you say, it's pronounced It's pronounced in different ways. Uh, magi, Maggie, uh, yeah, yeah. we'll we'll kind of go back and forth with those. Well, when we talk about the Greek word, we'll stick with magoi perhaps. Mm-hmm. But uh, I say magi. You can say Maggie. Tomato, tomato. How about that? <laughs> good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, regarding the book, uh, I think there's uh, tends to be a lot of junk on there out there on popular bookshelves. So I wish books like this had a place on them uh, for uh, for people to uh, access from Target or Walmart. But anyway, off my soapbox for a minute. Um, <laughs> uh, the Magi are fascinating characters, as you establish in this book, but they're limited in the New Testament, at least, to a single chapter of Matthew, uh, 12 verses, as you say. They appear and then they disappear almost without a trace. Uh, they fulfill a purpose for the author of Matthew and basically this invites others to fill in the gaps about them. So before we get into the arguments that you make in your book, I wondered if you would uh, talk us through how you approach this gospel that we know as Matthew as a biblical scholar from a scholarly perspective. Where do the traditions and the sources that Matthew inherits comes from? And perhaps more importantly, um, many listeners will assume that when we talk about Matthew, we refer not just to the first gospel in the New Testament, but also its author as the tax collector called by Jesus in chapter nine of Matthew, who is known in Mark chapter two as Levi? You didn't really get into the scholarship or on the authorship of the gospel too much, other than him writing in Greek, which might say something uh, for those in the know. So I wondered if you wanted to say anything about the authorship of the gospel, his sources, and how that, under, uh, that how that affects rather your understanding of the Magi story.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so broadly speaking, um, you know, as approaching this, uh, approaching this text as a biblical scholar um, and my own particular type of biblical scholarship, I suppose, um, my interest is primarily in Matthew as a work of literature. And, um, and I think I say it at one point in the book, I can't remember the exact words I use, but Matthew as a work of essentially creative fiction. Um, and so, uh, or, or at the very least, the Magi story is a work of of creative fiction. So the traditions and sources and Matthew is, uh, is inheriting, you know, there's, there is this kind of question, uh, that I have that I didn't really get into too much in the book, but this question of where does the Magi story come from? And, um, you know, there are some who have argued that Matthew is drawing from, uh, another tradition, maybe an oral tradition or, um, or something that he saw written down. Um, the story as we have, it is a thoroughly mythian story. And so it, it really just makes sense uh, within Matthew's gospel. Um, you know, for my purposes in this book, uh, it doesn't really matter where it came from. It, it matters, you know, how, how it, how it exists in the, in that text, uh, in the text of Matthew's gospel and kind of what, what, Mileage is he getting out of it? Um, now, in terms of yeah, the the authorship of the uh, of the gospel, um, yes, Matthew is the shorthand uh, name that we give the author to avoid saying you know the author of the Gospel of Matthew or whatever. Uh, but it's certainly uh, it, I, I for my purposes, it, it is that kind of traditional attribution, right? Sort of you know the gospels, all of the gospels are written anonymously. Um, none of the gospels really. Uh, with with John maybe as an exception none of the gospels really give give readers um uh you know n- n- none of the authors ex- again except John none of the authors are are trying to convince their readers that they were actually there John has that kind of wink wink like maybe i was there <laughs> for some of this but but all of these things inherit traditional names, uh, later. Um, but yeah, you, you had said, um, uh, you know, this, this claim of, of Matthew writing in Greek, uh, is sort of for those in the know, um, a a big claim for the, for the most part, biblical scholars, um, uh, take, take it as just a fact that Matthew wrote in Greek, but, uh, there were at least some patristic, uh, streams that believed that Matthew wrote in Hebrew. Um, there is one, uh, author, uh, that I know of of a Magi book who um, who claims that Matthew is writing in Hebrew. he's relying on um, very very idiosyncratic use of uh, of old sources and doesn't really do a very good job with them but he uh, I, I, I dedicate an entire footnote to how <laughs> nonsensical that claim is. Um, um, but yes, yeah, so in terms of in terms of the author, um, we don't really know who the author of Matthew was. We know that he was writing in Greek. Um, we can sort of, you know, piece together uh, his theology based on the stories that he tells. But other than that, uh, he's sort of a mystery to us.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can guess that he might have been from somewhere in the east. Uh, Syria, I think, is uh, typically uh, uh, the place uh, where Matthew is located. But uh, who knows what his uh, name actually was? Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And uh, do you want to get into the for those in the know, the little the little uh, uh, inside baseball understanding that we have about the claim that he wrote in Greek rather than Aramaic or Hebrew? Oh, um, how do you mean? Well, uh, so there's a pretty common patristic claim or myth that uh, uh, Matthew is written in Aramaic and then later translated uh, into Greek. And uh, even though that seems pretty popular in early patristic texts, it doesn't seem to be reflected because we know that one of the major sources for uh, Matthew, of course, is Mark. And um, uh, uh, so it would be pretty odd if uh, uh, this was originally written in Aramaic and then translated into Greek and and so happened to match up with uh, his main source.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I I misunderstood the question. But yes, no, absolutely. It's one of those things that like once you actually do really any level of source critical work with with Matthew, um, it's very, very clearly a text that was composed in Greek and not and not in any of the these other kind of Semitic tongues.
1: But when we deal with the sources, there is no uh, a previous source that we have written down for the Magi story, which is the uh, um, uh, what we're focusing on here uh, today. So uh, I do want to ask uh, you, uh, since you say that you approach um, the Gospel of Matthew, or at least this story within it, as a creative fiction of sorts, what motivates you personally to uh, pursue this kind of study into biblical texts uh, like, uh, like uh, you have shown so uh, uh, fabulously in the Magi?
0: Yeah. Thanks. No, I, I think, um, what motivates me personally, I mean, obviously it's, it's fame and fortune, right. Um, so, uh-huh. uh, no, what, what motivates me personally, I think, you know, I, um, I've always kind of enjoyed reading. I've always enjoyed, uh, literature and questions of, you know, plot characterizations and like the world of the story and those sorts of things are, have always just fascinated me biblical and otherwise, you know, uh, try to, try to sort of get into, um, get into stories and, and figure out. Out what's going on? Um, but then, um, for for whatever reason, um, when I was in uh, when I was in graduate school, one of the things that I really gravitated towards was um, reception history and just sort of seeing, you know, what what people have done with, uh, with various biblical texts. And I think that's what what kind of pushed me towards uh, study of the apocrypha, which these are, you know, people reading biblical and other texts, and then kind of, you know, adapting them and changing them and adding to them and subtracting from them. And so, um, yeah, I think I mean, that that ultimately has been um, has been my main motivation is just kind of a just a fascination with with uh, uh, literature, and then the afterlives of that literature.
1: I'm right there with you on the reception of uh, texts that, especially, are non-canonical. That, uh, but are seemingly uh, just as popular as some biblical texts. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah, that's a great way to uh, get into this. So it wasn't mm-hmm. the the deep seated impact of We Three Kings as a as a hymn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, and I I do I tell the story um, uh, a, a very kind of brief version of the story in in the um, in the acknowledgements of the book. But um I, I have I ha- I mean I, I was raised um kind of going to church and I was raised, you know, reading these stories and hearing these stories and and um and and the Magi I do have a, a memory from from my childhood. Uh, um one of my favorite uncles uh, made a made a gift for uh, for my mother, and my grandmother. Um, these blue glass uh, vases that have the magi etched into the into the side of them. We still, I still have the my, my mother's, um, or my mother still has hers rather, and I sort of still you know enjoy seeing it at Christmas time. But um, you know, I, I do, I do remember kind of even as a child being kind of fascinated by um, by these characters. And of course on the vase, there's three of them in Matthew. There's just sort of an unnamed, uh, an unnamed number three gifts, but not necessarily three magi. And, um, but yeah, I I think from an early age, it was a story that kind of captivated me and kind of made me think, um, uh, you know, kind of, you know, sort of a story that's cloaked in mystery and kind of raises a lot of questions. And, you know, in the research for this book, I mean, we'll talk about one of the things that's, that's, uh, kind of notable, I guess, is that I certainly wasn't the only one who was fascinated by the story. It's been for 2000 years. This is like, you know, keeps people up at night.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, as you mentioned, uh, your previous work is on uh, sort of reception history of, of, of apocryphal texts, and I was aware of your previous work, actually, on the Proto-Evangelium of James, uh, one of the more famous of the non-canonical texts, and that it uh, contains sort of the basis for the doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception and the Catholic reverence for her. Other traditions, of course, revere her as well. Uh, we call it the Proto-Evangelium, uh, but it might as well be a, a prequel uh, to the familiar gospel stories. Uh, I, I would advocate for calling them prequels instead, but I don't know if that's going to catch on. Um, and it, it was apparently quite popular throughout early Christian history. So um did the magi uh, stem from this previous work of yours uh, on the protoevangelium?
0: Yes, absolutely it did. Um so the the the, the protoevangelium and this is a sort of magi uh, magi magi uh, I say protoevangelium but um you know in in the in the the protoevangelium is a um you know for your listeners to say a um a collection of stories about uh m- prep primarily the childhood of Mary. And um, so Jesus's birth occurs uh, at the end of it, but it's very much a kind of the the focus of it is on is on Mary. And then when Jesus appears, you get kind of a interesting combination of the infancy stories of Matthew and Luke. And so, uh, you know, the author's trying to kind of, you know, combine them and harmonize them and, um, uh, and I, I actually do think that this author is, um, is writing with the aim of having this text be a sort of, you know, proto gospel, you know, I, I really, I really enjoy, um, that, uh, that language of prequel, um, or reboot is what I call it in, in my book on it. But, um, yeah, so the, the magi do appear in the, in the proto, the, the proto evangelium, they, they appear towards the end and, um, the idea for this book actually very much came out of not the not my research uh for uh, for on that text which was my dissertation um, but it came out of a conversation with one of my dissertation uh board members who said, you know why did you not?" Talk about the Magi story, you know, it's getting kind of interesting. Some interesting changes um, in the Magi story occurs kind of toward the end, and you know, and really, my answer was like, I, I you know, I just it wasn't really useful for my argument, um, but also I sort of like needed to be done with my dissertation, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to do, I didn't want to do the entirety of it, you know, the entirety of the text, to sort of like leave leave some things toward the end, um, kind of out. And, um, so anyway, I, I sort of like punted and was like, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't really uh, address that, that, that episode so much. Um, but I would love to do something on it. Maybe even a whole book on, you know, the reception history of the Magi Now that was in 2014, uh, when I had that conversation. So it did take, you know, it took the better part of, um, you know, almost a decade rather from, from, uh. Yeah, so it, it took a long time. But I started I did start doing the research uh, for that for this book, um, only a few days after my defense. And so I went back to the library, just, you know, took all my books for from the dissertation, back to the circulation desk. And then I started kind of looking at uh, Matthew. Um, you got the itch, right? And I got and then I was like, wow, there's a lot here. And uh, so uh, but yeah, it was a lot of a long time of, of research and thinking about it. And then, you know, writing it towards the end there.
1: Very nice. Okay, so uh, we have the preamble. We have the uh, prequel to uh, your book. Let's uh, get into the nitty-gritty of the book itself. Um, you, you start from a point of sort of rejecting questions about historicity of the uh, Magi. Uh, you say that this is less important than understanding what, uh, quote, literary and theological significance they have, um, not only for Matthew, but also for his earliest audiences. And you get into um, sort of the uh, ongoing debate between author's intent and reader response criticism there as well. Uh, Then you demonstrate that we, you know, get carried off into strange places of interpretation when we bring our own baggage to the biblical text and think things are there that aren't actually there. We read details into it, eisegesis, if you will. Uh, And you suggest that we uh, learn to read with first century baggage. So I should ask, uh, what baggage should we carry into it? What should readers know about the first century context of the gospel and the political situation of the Roman territory of Judea, and uh, in order to understand this uh, story of the Magi.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I do. Um, I do kind of try to just sort of. Um, uh, put that question of the Magi's historicity um, just kind of put it, just sort of shelve it and say, you know, I, I don't really care if it's historical or not there's plenty of people who believe it. it is um, plenty of people who have read and enjoyed this book, um, which is great uh, that that have said, well, I disagree with you on the historicity, but, you know, you're right like it doesn't really matter for, uh, for the meaning of the story the, the literary and theological significance um, in terms of the first century uh, that sort of context I mean, I think the angle that I take in this book and the angle that kind of came out of my research is that this is uh, very much a story uh, about politics for for lack of a for lack of a better term. It's a story about legitimate kingship. Um, it's a story about, um, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, what what who is the legitimate king? Um, so. You know, in in that kind of vein, I think you know what I what I think readers should know about the first century context for the purposes of this uh, story. You know, very much is that kind of Roman rule of uh, the Roman rule of Judea. Now, I think, and there 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 are a couple of references to uh, to life of Brian in the book. I hope you appreciated those. Hope you
1: found those. I also got kind of a reference or two to the Holy Grail. Um, uh, yeah. And- <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, no,
0: there's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to kind of um, I, I, I was f- thankful that Fortress allowed those to to, to stay in. <laughs> it's a little little seasoning here and there for those who know, but um, yeah, I, you know, I I imagined, you know, as I as I kind of imagined the uh the kind of attitude towards the Romans in first century Judea, um, I think a lot about, uh, you know, how did the how did first century Judeans feel about the Romans? Well. I mean, that really depends on who you ask in first century Judea. You know, if you asked Herod the Great, we'll get to him, I guess, in a bit. But if you ask Herod the Great, you know, he uh, loves the Romans or at the very least, he wants the Romans to think that he loves them. Right. Um, But if you asked, you know, if you asked, uh, um, you know, just. A person on the street, like, what did you think? What do you think about the Romans? I, I honestly think it probably would have differed from person to person, right? Like, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, the aqueduct, medicine, you know, all those, like, the olive oil or whatever, um, uh, like all, all, of these, all of these sorts of things. So, the political situation in first century Judea, Judea I suppose, is just sort of uh, complicated, right? And so how do they feel about the Romans? Well, it does depend on who you ask. It depends on when you're asking them too. if you're asking the start of the first century. Um, and so when Matthew's writing, you know, we think Matthew's probably writing in the eighties or nineties and Matthew is writing um, after the, the, the relationship between Rome and Judea has sort of um, become a lot more tense and you know, 70, they. The Romans lay siege to the city. Uh, they destroy the temple, right, raised to the ground, and um, so Matthew is writing in that kind of um, uh, not just a complicated situation of like oh, some of the Judeans like the Romans, and some of them don't. Matthew is really writing in a in a situation where. relationship has very much soured right and the romans are kind of exerting um a lot more kind of dominance um you know and, and um and so so matthew is is writing in that context but then he is um writing about events um in his kind of story world that are happening you know 80 90 years earlier and so he's kind of um retrojecting that very uh tense kind of powder keg context back onto the start of the first century.
1: So would it be safe to say that Matthew writes from a point of, uh, the failure of, uh, Judean compliance with, uh, with, with Rome? Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely
0: fair. You know, is writing, um, Matthew is writing with full knowledge, uh, that, that this is going to, um, yeah, that this relationship is going to turn kind of toxic and, uh, and he's writing, he, yeah, he's, he's, he's looking at the past through that lens. Absolutely.
1: and we'll get to Herod in in a little bit. Yes. Uh, let's let's go to your uh, second chapter where you discuss a few issues of translation in the passage of, of Matthew uh, related to how we should understand the Greek word magoi and a few others. Uh, then you offer sort of your entire translation of Matthew two one through twelve. Uh, looked great to me. Uh, my sense was that the most significant issue of confusion or possible confusion here is the range of meanings that can be uh, connoted by magoi. Uh, so I wondered if you could if you agreed with my assessment there. First of all. Uh, out of the three issues that you discuss in the chapter. Uh, and if you could explain what Magoi could mean in Greek, how it's been rendered in English translations down the ages, and why you prefer to carry over Magi or Magi from uh, basically from the Latin Vulgate untranslated in lieu of one of the more uh, 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 translatable options that were available to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, and and you, you're, you you're dead on there. The the really the most significant um, issue really is that uh, um There's so many connotations that sort of go into uh, into this term. So you know, there's been um, uh, I mean, magi or magoi or whatever is the uh, in the Greek is is where we ultimately where we get this terminology of of magic from. And so I've seen some translations not. not published translations but i've seen some people who have translated this as you know magicians from the east came uh to to see G, to to for the king of the judeans um there's some translations uh, obviously that one of the most famous is um i think it's the king james Now i'm getting my wires crossed but uh you know the the wise men right that's the kind of you know that 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 has probably had the most staying power. Um, But also there's some translations that are, um, you know, astrologers. And of course the hymn you mentioned earlier, the Kings, right. Um, But, you know, if if I had to sort of, you know, go with one of those, I would I I would almost think that wise men probably is is the is the most neutral, like the value neutral or whatever. Um interestingly though, the the kind of you know the astrologer angle is is fascinating because there's obviously this star that they're following, right? But in other ancient literature about the the about magi, um, just sort of more broadly, one of the things they seem like almost like not interested in at all is stars like they they're really really interested in dreams they're really really interested in in kings uh and other kind of signs but they're they they aren't really known as astrologers um first and foremost and they certainly aren't uh, aren't kings but anyway, what could this what could this mean in Greek? Um, it certainly could mean uh, magicians. It couldn't. It could mean sorcerer. Um, it sort of implies like advisory figures, those sorts of things. So you could say like magi could mean um, you know advisors or something like that. Um, but really, I mean, I made that I made that decision to um, to just leave it kind of untranslated or or to take that loan word, and I made that decision um, it, first just to say. Kind of throw up my hands and go. I don't really want to choose one of these, but also because the way that we translate um, these words, the way that we refer to people, um, you know, it, it very much affects the way that we understand them. And so, I wanted people to approach this, the these characters in this book, to say, you know, we're going to use this stranger, this strange term, this magi, and we're going to use that sort of as an indicator that we don't actually know, um, who these people are supposed to be, you know, and, and so, you know, that, that kind of maybe, um, maybe pushes readers in that direction of like, let's, let's be comfortable for a little while with the strangeness, um, you know, and not just, la- and not be so quick to label them, you know, the example, another example is sort of a cognitive example is, um, you know, the way that we title stories, um, uh, in. I'm thinking specifically of Luke's parable which is traditionally called the uh, um, the prodigal son. Right. Um, and so that th- I mean, that that's a great example. Right. When you ask people to sort of like, well, what is this story about? Um, I mean, it's, well, it's about the son who goes away and then he comes back and you know, whatever. But like, that's not really the point of it in Luke. Like the point of it in Luke is like the it, it's more accurate to call it like the parable of the father and his two sons, because it's as much about the older brother as it is about the younger son. But, you know, the way that we label that, affects the way that we understand it.
1: Very good. And I think you make the point fairly well that the uh, Magi, whatever we want to call them or however we translate the word Magoi, they're people who uh, have some interest in powerful people, right? Uh, they exist in the orbit of perhaps kings or rulers, and they're seeking out others that are kind of in their own orbit. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think you, uh, you put it very well when you talked about the uh, range of translations and why you go with uh, uh, Magi alone over magical people or sorcerers or diviners or whatever else it could possibly mean. Um, but the passage, the 12 verses in Matthew are, uh, you know, they're more than about this one Greek word, magoi. So I wondered uh, if there are any common misconceptions when it comes to translating the passage or understanding the passage uh, from a popular academic level, uh, if there are any common misconceptions that you encountered while you were undergoing this uh, work.
0: Yeah, so um, I think, you know, and it's going to sound like, you um, it's just kind of crazy to say, but I mean, one of the most common, one of the most common interpretations of this passage, um, which I just think is absolutely dead wrong. But it's, I mean, it's super prevalent in mm-hmm. in, in commentaries, and, and it's super prevalent in just scholarship on Matthew. Um, this common, in, in my view, misconception that Matthew's story of the Magi is a story about Gentiles coming to see. The coming to see Jesus, and and and, you know again anyone who's anyone who's uh, who's familiar with scholarship on Matthew is going to maybe be a little bit surprised that I say that, but I think that's absolutely dead wrong. I think that Matthew is telling a far more interesting story. Like, are the magi in Matthew's story Gentiles? Yes. Probably so. Matthew probably imagines them as Gentiles, although not necessarily like all, you know, it's not it's not necessarily the case that all magi in the ancient world are Gentiles. There's examples that I cite in the book of like Jewish magi. Um, But I think that is a huge misconception. And I think that it comes from failing to appreciate just how loaded the terminology of magi is or Magoi actually is. So here's an example. So like, you know, the, the way that he, the way that Matthew uh, labels these characters means that he's so much more interested in them than just their Gentiles. Um, so let's say that I'm telling you a story and I say, you know, I'm looking out my way, you know, I, I get up out of bed in the morning and I look out my window and there is a man standing on the, on the, on the sidewalk and looking at, At my house and he begins to walk towards the house and he um you know he rings the doorbell and i go down to 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 answer the door like that's the start of a of a story it's not a particularly interesting story but you know the man standing on the on this on the sidewalk now let's say i'm telling you another uh, uh, that story in a different way and i say i look out my window in the morning and i see a lawyer standing on the sidewalk and looking at my house and he begins to walk towards the door to ring the doorbell okay so now you've got a different sort of attention right like that's not just a, a a person standing on the sidewalk looking at my house there's a lawyer and what is he coming to tell me is he coming to tell me that you know like the bank is repossessing your house or is he coming to tell me that i have a um, you know a wealthy family member that i'm not aware of who's recently passed away right um Matthew's telling standing warrant, <laughs> Right. So it's like, well, you know, I'm uh not gonna be able to pick up the kids from school today. Um no, like so Matthew, but but w- between those two stories, Matthew's telling the second story. He's not telling the first story, but biblical scholars have erred um on the side of assuming that Matthew's telling the first story, right? Oh, the Magi come to to. To to Judea to see the newborn uh, you know the the one born king of the Judeans. Um, Matthew's point here is that the magi are Gentiles. No, no. Matthew's point is not that the magi are Gentiles. Matthew's point is that the magi are magi. So what is that supposed to mean, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great uh, great um, uh, comparison, uh, uh, food for thought on why Matthew is telling the story. Now, when when the story goes beyond Matthew, perhaps, uh, to the other uh, evangelists, uh, when we think about Luke, it's often assumed that Luke doesn't have access to Matthew, but even if he did, he apparently doesn't think very highly of Magoi, uh, as you demonstrate in two stories from the book of Acts of Simon Magus and uh, Bar-Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, this contrasts with the honor that is usually attributed to the magi now uh, going so far as sainthood or reverence, but also, as we said, appearing in Christian hymnody and uh, in uh, stories that continue to be retold. Uh, so I'm curious, what would audiences from the wider Greco-Roman culture who heard Matthew's gospel have thought about the story of an, of the appearance of Magoi? So this is getting away from author's intent and maybe uh, listening more into reader response. What would they have thought about uh, uh, the Magoi appearing here to Jesus? And how does this align or not align with the author's intent?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I think, um, you know, Luke is, Luke is a kind of great, a great example. I mean, because Luke is a, is a gospel that's sort of just, you know, separated by one book from Matthew and, uh, if luke um won't get into the the question of whether luke knew matthew but if luke I think he sat, did by
1: the way but but uh, we, we you're right we don't need to get yeah. into it
0: no it doesn't it doesn't really matter for our purposes i'm intrigued by the possibility that he did but if luke sits down and reads matthew's gospel luke is going to roll his eyes and just throw up his hands at this idea that these magi are I mean the Magi and Matthew are positive characters, right? They're not like they're not um, uh, uh, you know criminals or they're not they're I mean they, there's no indication that they're that they're negative. Matthew seems to use this as um, as an accolade, not as an insult. But Luke doesn't like yeah Luke doesn't like uh, Magi very much. So. Um, What would people from the wider Greco-Roman culture uh, have understood by their designation as magi? Um, there's really, kind of broadly speaking, a couple of different ways to understand the, a couple of different connotations that this that this term brings. Um, there's plenty of magi who are spoken of in uh, in Greek literature. Herodotus is among the most um, kind of prominent in that in that canon, but uh, that, that talks about magi. Uh, and here, magi are these sort of religious professionals. They are uh, highly trained. Um, they are powerful, they are persuasive, they're influential, all of these things. And so there's plenty of, uh, people in this, uh, kind of Greco-Roman, uh, culture who would, who would see Magi and they would think, Ooh, Magi, that's, you know, like, you know serious, serious business, right? Just sort of, um, you know, they would, they would see that as a, as, um, not necessarily a compliment, but as sort of just a designation, right? Somebody who's highly trained, um, somebody who is, um, respectable, perhaps. Um, But there's also then a sense uh, there's some who are, who are looking at Magi and um, Magi are sort of uh, hucksters or swindlers or sort of the, you know, uh, like, like a street performer or something like this. And that, that seems to be kind of how Luke, um, you know, Luke has these two, these two um, people, Simon Magus and Bar-Jesus. And Simon Magus is a, is a sort of former, a former Magus or, what uh, he was a Magus at some point. Um, and, uh, but Luke, Luke portrays him as somebody who's interested mostly in like magic tricks and buying the power of the Holy spirit and all of this, but he's, you know, He's, he's not a respectable character and Bar-Jesus is also sort of just not, you know, he's, he's trying to get in Paul's way of, uh, of spreading the, the, the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, what, what would people have heard? I mean, like any, like any word that, um, that carries connotations, it really depends on who's, who's doing the reading. Just like my example of the, of the, uh, of the lawyer, Right. How you feel about lawyers depends on which lawyers you're talking to and and if you've done something wrong or whatever. Um, So, you know, I think I think people I think people reading Matthew, I, I think they would have run the gamut in terms of how they understood these 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 people.
1: Right. So one person's junk is another person's treasure. One person's slime ball is another person's you know, perfectly <laughs> laudable religious professional, right? That's right, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, let's move on. Uh, in your next chapter, your fourth chapter, you uh, rewind the narrative back from Matthew 2 to Matthew 1, one of the, as we say, the driest chapters of the New Testament. Matthew's genealogy for Jesus back to Abraham via King David, who would seem to be the star of, of the show there. Um, but you discuss the genealogy to, unleash the role of the Magi who you say emphasize the political message of the genealogy. Um, I was already with you by this point uh, while I was reading in your analysis of the Magi, but the idea that the Magi convey the legitimate king of Israel by birth, one born king of the Judeans, rather than by selection of the Roman Senate, as uh, Herod the Great was. Uh, I thought that was really on point. So um, what kind of critiques did Judeans and perhaps even other people as well have of Herod the Great that would align with Matthew's uh, perspective, his critique of this one who was selected as king of the Judeans rather than born king of the Judeans?
0: Yeah. Um, and that you know, that's another one of those I, I feel like there's a little bit of a cop out just to say it depends on who you ask, but it really does depend on who you ask in terms of like, how are um, how are people kind of understanding um, uh, understanding Herod, you know, Josephus, obviously, is one of our best, um, our best sources for understanding kind of first century Judean perspectives on things. Um, he sort of in some places seems to Uh, praise Herod. I mean, you know, there's, uh, I mean, Herod is known really as a, as a, as a builder, right? So that's one of the things that he's, uh, that he's remembered for and the ruins of his building projects are all over the, uh, all over uh, the place um, still. And so, you know, if you ask somebody who is, um, let's say living in Jerusalem where Herod, uh, you know, expands the temple and makes it you know, even more beautiful than it was before, that person might be inclined to say, well, you know, Herod's, you know, he's he's done some good stuff, right? I mean, he's made he's made the temple pretty, all this kind of stuff. But I mean Herod also is um is somebody whose top priority was cozying up to the Romans. So the Senate votes him king of the Judeans, and he um and he has that title only to the extent that he is continuing to cozy up to them and 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 be a good uh kind of puppet king and so you know i think i think there are certain people if if you have somebody in the you know in judea who's not a huge fan of roman occupation um that person might see herod the great as uh, yeah as somebody who um who doesn't have uh uh, judea's interest in in mind perhaps since like the top priority is is rome um you know, Herod also, you know, and this is something that very much comes through in Matthew's uh, view of him. You know, Matthew depicts Herod the Great as a kind of bloodthirsty, um, brutal ruler. Right. And and, you know, one of the things that I note in, in the book is that, you know, Herod's slaughter of all of the the babies in, in Bethlehem uh, is not something that we have attested outside of. Uh, outside of Matthew so it's it it seems like Matthew has created this story in order to um align uh, Jesus's birth with the story of Moses's birth, you know, the Pharaoh kills all the the Hebrew babies and whatever. Um, but, uh, but that perspective of Herod as this brutal ruler in Matthew is very much echoed in what we know about Herod. Um, you know, as somebody who has members of his family, his wife, uh, executed and, um, you know, out of, out of sort of fear. So that, that's those two kind of portraits, um, do, do very much align. Yeah. Very or they nice. echo each other at least
1: very nice uh, so uh, i feel like i've read before in sort of the secondary literature that uh, if we have even minor traces of herodian propaganda that he would have have been portraying himself as sort of a new solomon someone who builds in the way that uh, solomon does i think we we only really have traces of that but uh, obviously if if you are one who uh, thinks favorably of herod you might portray him in that sort of light rather than the brutal murderer who kills members of his own family and uh, just to preserve his power. Right. Uh, I don't always read from uh, the books that, that I feature on the, on the podcast, but I do want to read a, a passage from uh, your page 80 or 85, because I thought it was particularly good. You say, uh, for Matthew, Herod is an illegitimate ruler, not an anointed king. And this sentiment is not unique to Matthew's gospel. No extant texts from the first century speak of Herod as anointed, the word behind Christ, Christos, right? Um, in contrast to Herod, whose authority and title depend on the pleasure of Rome, Jesus' Uh, is his by virtue of his lineage the politically subversive question where is the one born king of the judeans implies that jesus embodies david's lineage and with it the hope that an anointed king not a puppet of the roman government will one day rule again uh, so is, is that sort of sentiment that would be birthed in a post-herod day or do you think that that was well alive when herod was uh, ac- actually king of the judeans
0: Oh, that's a great question. That's one that I'm not going to give you a great answer to. Uh, <laughs> I sprung it on you. I realize. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's a really, really great, uh, great question. I think it's very telling. One of the things you know, research should always surprise us, right? And should give, you know, give us new things to think about. And one of the things that was very kind of interesting and surprising to me was when i kind of came across this um this claim that you know there are no first century uh there there are no extant texts from the first century that refer to herod as a as a as an anointed king as a kind of davidic which you know by matthew's time anointed means davidic like that's sort of uh you know well before matthew's time as well but mm-hmm. um, no i think um, at the very least, it certainly is a sentiment for Matthew, whether it's a sentiment earlier. Um, I have no idea. Yeah, okay. couldn't couldn't speak couldn't speak authoritatively on that.
1: That's fair. It's good to know yeah. the limits of, uh, of our right. knowledge. Right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
1: another tidbit, I guess, that I bring from uh, my understanding of previous scholarship on Matthew. Uh, one quote that has always stuck with me from Ulrich Luz's, Lutz, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, uh, but his hermeneic commentary on Matthew is that it's uh, the gospel is its author's response to quote, Israel's no to Jesus as Messiah. Um, The gospel kind of famously contains some of the most uh, devastating vitriol toward the Jews in the New Testament. And uh, yet the Magi are looking for one born king of the, the Jews or Judeans. And Herod turns and asks his advisors about the Messiah or the anointed one. So it's almost as if everybody in this you know, narrative in this little pericope, they know something uh, that Jesus's uh, auditors and Matthew's audience don't. Um, as you suggest, uh, both the flight of the star and the gifts given to Jesus all have political significance as well. So uh, is this kind of a, um, a contrivance that all of these characters are looking for a king? Or um, uh, um, th- th- maybe talk about the political significance of all the various little items in here, the star, uh, the gifts, and so on.
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, I understand, you know, the the presence of the magi just to begin with is very much, I think, in that in that context of the Greek literature that I survey. Um the presence of the magi is is sort of um, you know, as these figures who are drawn to political power and also in so much literature, you know, when the magi show up, um it's you're about to have some like political turmoil or maybe even a change in leadership. Um, there's one story in Herodotus of where the Magi sort of uh, put one of their own on the throne to kind of pretend to be King for a while. Um, and so the Magi showing up in uh, first in Jerusalem is sort of a, uh, is sort of a trigger for that first century reader as, you know, Oh, wow, the Magi are here, you know, the, um, yeah, something interesting is about to happen, um, with kingship and with rulers and that sort of stuff. Cause the when the magi show up, that's what, that's what does happen. Um, and then I also think, yeah, there's, there's a sort of, you know, the, the gifts that they're bringing, um, seems to be some type of, you know, tribute for the, for the King. So there's a kind of political dynamic there. I don't, contrary to some, uh, patristic and also then, uh, certainly some modern interpreters as well. I don't think that the gifts have any sort of, um, ideological or theological significance for Matthew. I and mean, it's an interesting kind of suggestion, but I don't, I don't think that's what's what Matthew's after. Um, and then the star also, you know, I make the point, the star is, uh, is a Roman propaganda symbol, uh, the Julian star, the, the star of Caesar, which signifies, uh, Caesar's, um, Uh, divinity. uh, And also um, the star is also well-known in biblical texts as, uh, you know, the, in, in Isaiah, you know, the, the, the taunt against the King of Babylon, your star has fallen, you know, that sort of stuff. So, so I think all of these things combined um, yeah, very much, very much paints the entire thing as a kind of um, a political, yeah, a political story about, you know, the magi are here to identify the real King.
1: If there's any one takeaway that I have from, uh, you know, your discussion of the Magi in this book, it's that uh, the political significance of the event in, uh, you know, all of the little details as well. Yeah. Okay, let's turn to where it gets even more interesting, I think, because uh, in uh, chapters five and six, you uh, consider all the additions to the Magi story in later centuries. And I, I, I found this really interesting, um, because I feel like I usually have a pretty good grasp on Christian apocrypha and Christian and patristic commentary, but I hadn't heard of the Syriac revelation of the Magi where Jesus himself literally becomes the star and the Magi are said to be from sort of a magical mushroom (laughs) kingdom of sorts. (laughs) Um, uh, All that's very interesting. Um, So you talk about that if you want, but uh, in, in, in one of the patristic texts that you uh, examine as well, the star is not a star, but rather an angel who just takes on the appearance of a star. So there's a lot of interesting later developments of this story. You discuss Mm -hmm. four apocryphal Magi narratives and I think uh, six, uh, patristic uh, commentaries on the story where the details all become sort of increasingly embellished and implausible. Um, can you kind of chart this trajectory for us <laughs> uh, down the centuries and uh, tell us about the most uh, significant alterations or additions yeah. to these post-biblically? Yeah, yeah. A- and, and also, I-, I might also say, like, what does this overall gap-filling tendencies say about the staying power of the Magi?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, one of the I maybe start with the staying power. And sure. because I think that the, the story itself is, is sort of delightfully indeterminate, right? There's sort mm-hmm. of, uh, there's so many unanswered questions that Matthew just tells the story that's so short. And then, you know, and then there's all these, I, I think about like, you know, reading to a reading to my kids, you know, and they always have these questions. Why is this? Why is this? Who is that? What is that? You know, and so, you know, so I think I think there there are a lot of gaps to be filled in the story, and I think that kind of um, uh, does kind of lead to some creativity in apocryphal uh, texts and also the patristic literature as well. But then there's there sort of the snowball effect of like you know the the apocrypha, you know, build on each other, and the patristics are kind of building on each other and whatever. And so then the magi become this. I mean, they just become this kind of force of nature that that kind of takes on a takes on a mind of the story kind of takes on a mind of its own. It takes on its own life. Um, So let's see, in terms of a trajectory and kind of charting, charting these changes that happen. I mean, I think one of the big, um, you know, it's all it's all really in the details and these questions that Matthew's story prompts. So. You know, the question in Apocrypha of uh, the nature of the star. And so, you know, in the protoevangelium for example, the, the brightness of the star is emphasized. And another, you know, the, and the, as noted in the Revelation of the Magi, the identity of the star as this shape-shifting Jesus, right? The, the star is Jesus himself who speaks to the Magi, who goes, um, you know, to where they live which is another big gap in the text, right? Where do the math, where do the magi and Matthew come from? They come from the East. Well, great. So do I, right? I'm in Virginia. Like I'm technically from the East. Um, so like, that's not helpful. If somebody asks, where are you from the East? Like, What does that mean? You know, it's like and it does it does mean something in in that kind of first century context, you know, Persia, that land over there that's very exotic or whatever. But um, but, you know, where exactly do they come from and who exactly are they? Right. And that's that question of like, you know, yeah what, who, who are they supposed to be? And so in these apocryphal texts, you have, um, you know, these are the types of details that these authors unpack and then they, they sort of elaborate on. And so, you know, the Magi are from a specific place in, in, in the revelation of the Magi, you call it the mushroom kingdom. I love that. The (laughs) land of sheer right at the edge of the world. And that's where they come from. And they sort of are, you know, they, they, they are given that backstory. Um, you know, what is the star? Well, it's, you know, Jesus. Jesus it's an angel it's a you know um just a star or something like that or whatever and so yeah the the apocrypha kind of build on each other by by sort of filling in these details and providing providing the kind of backstories um you know i i, I addressed the uh the patristics in the, in in their own chapter because i mean they needed their own chapter but also you know Patristics, as you're well aware, patristic authors and apocryphal authors—you know these are—I um, mean, they're all—they're all sort of writing at the same time, and they're all sort of—you know—developing in the same pool. Um, it's not to say necessarily that the patristic authors are reading apocryphal uh, literature, although some of them are. Um, but you know, the 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 same types of things happen um, when you are reading patristic authors. You get this kind of question about, well, what is the nature of the star? that's really interesting to patristic authors who are often like decrying astrology and saying, we shouldn't be, you know, looking for signs in the heavens or, or, you know, people who do this or, or whatever. And so like they have to go through a lot of effort to try and say, Oh, it, it couldn't have been a star because astrology is bunk. So what is it exactly? Well, you know, it's a, it's, it's something else or, um, or whatever, but, um, but yeah, they also they also tend to in in the patristic uh, patristic text that I surveyed, they also tend to speak of the Magi as um, you know, really the, the the first sort of proto Christians, right. And they are sort of coming to Jesus, um, for various reasons, but many of them talk about them coming to Jesus for deliverance from demonic possession Mm -hmm. or, um, or deliverance from, you know, whatever paganism has them, has them chained up or whatever. And so they come to Jesus and then by bowing before Jesus and worshiping Jesus, um, uh, you know, they, they are sort of, you know, delivered from this and then they leave and they become the first evangelists, right? Oh. They go off and they, um you know, they, they, they spread the, they spread the good news. Know,
1: they're apostles um, of sorts, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that's, uh, and that's very, 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 very prevalent in patristic interpretations is this sort of the magi as converts, you know, mm-hmm. Christians, Christians before there were Christians kind of thing. Yeah.
1: I enjoyed how uh, those two chapters filled in all the details, like when the uh, Magi acquired their names uh, that are traditionally given to them and the background of the, Oh, you know, I think they assume, well, certainly there was more dialogue between uh, Herod and Herod's people and the Magi. So they go into, you know, three different dialogues or whatever it may be about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what their actual purpose for being in the land was and uh, why Herod was uh, upset with them for not coming to him first and so on and so forth. Um, But anyway, uh, let's move on. Um, There's one common thread that runs throughout your book, and that's the tendency for Christian commentators on the story of the Magi to express some form of supersessionism or anti-Semitism or to use your preferred term for it, uh, Judeophobia. Um, Matthew's Gospel, of course, especially Gener- generative of this, even though it seems to have been birthed in the context of sort of in- intra-Jewish conflict, uh, two different sort of Jewish parties in conflict with one another. Can you give a few examples of the Judeophobic uses of the Magi passage and speak to why it's important for you as a scholar to call these uh, cases out as you do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the yeah, so d- the Judeophobia of Matthew, I think. Um, I I think that a lot of this uh, comes from, I mean, first of all, we have to be honest with, you know, is it possible? that Matthew was, was that Matthew's Magi story was meant by the author to be supersessionist or, or Judeophobic or, or whatever term we want to use for that. Is it possible? Yes, absolutely. So like, I don't want, I'm not going to be one of these people who is, uh, is trying to say that Matthew is definitely 100% not doing this because it is possible that that's what he's doing. But I think one of the, um, uh, one of the things that really leads to this interpretation is the early identification in many of the patristic sources. Um, and many of, um, Uh, Many of them interpreting um, the Magi as as Gentiles rather than just the the much more complicated, um, the much more complicated understanding of them as these kind of religious professionals or advisory figures. And so I think once the Magi, once the most interesting thing about the Magi becomes that they are Gentiles, it becomes very, very easy for later readers to sort of see this story as the good Gentiles who want to come to Jesus and then the bad Jews who just want to murder him, right? And and Herod being, you know, the king of the, um, well, sort of the the most common uh, translation of his title, the king of the Jews. I prefer the king of the Judeans in this context because I think it highlights that political dynamic um, more than the religious dynamic. So I think you know I, once once the once the magi become in the minds of their interpreters, once they become Gentiles, and that's and that's it. Um, that then leads to i think this this kind of conflict of like matthew is trying to pit you know the gentiles have always been interested in jesus whereas the jews have never been interested in jesus i don't think that's what matthew's doing but that's become one of the more common threads yeah. It was v- and it was one of those things where you know research should surprise you. Research also needs to disappoint us sometimes. And when I that, when I discovered that thread in the course of my research, that was um, that was sort of one of those like, well, now I have to talk about this, right? right. Um, and it was one of those very, very un- in my mind, very unfortunate um, uses of the Magi story.
1: Yep, and like I said, um, Matthew is full of these instances where uh, commentators have uh, taken us into uh, fields that we uh, probably shouldn't be in. But anyway, yes. um, let's uh, uh, let's move on. Um, I called attention to your earlier proposition that we hear the Magi story with first century baggage, and uh, yet you demonstrate that as early as uh, Justin Martyr in the mid second century, the political nature of this story has either been de-emphasized or lost altogether, and sort of commentators ever since, even into the 21st century, tend to use this story for moralistic or universalistic reasons. So uh, what kind of interpretive takeaways about the Magi story do you hope that readers acquire from your book? And I also have to ask, because it's there in your subtitle, although I realize that uh, you know we as authors don't always have choice of title and subtitle, you, uh, right. I don't think you've answered it directly, but who were the Magi uh, to this author, uh, Matthew?
0: Yeah, well, so the first, I mean, to the first question, what what kind of interpretive takeaways? um, You know, one of the, I think one of the, one of the goals, uh, one of the goals of the book was to leave readers with a sense of just how much more complicated the Magi story uh, is from maybe what they've been taught, uh, or um yeah, more more complicated and also more interesting, right? It's sort of like when you when you really kind of get into these details and you examine things on the level of, you know, just individual words and whatever, it's, it's, it's so much more complicated, but it's also so much more interesting. And so, and I, and I do think that it, that it has, the book has had that effect, I think on it, at least some that I've talked with. Um, and I had a one, one person come up to me at a, at an event that I, that I spoke at and she had, she had read the book before the event and she came up to me and she said, at the end of this book, I realized just how much there is lurking beneath the surface of this story and then she says and then i started thinking i wonder if that's the case for all of the stories uh, in the bible yes, it's like <laughs> indeed <laughs> so and, I, and 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 i'm I, we, you know we're both sort of laughing not because it's a silly question but because like that's the that's the dream right like that's the best that's the best realization you can come to is wow All of these stories are so much more complicated and so much more interesting when you look at them in that kind of like what what's going into this. So you could do a book like this with with lots and lots and lots of stories right but i guess in terms of interpretive takeaway uh yes the magi story is so much more interesting when you look at it in that context but then also the bigger takeaway is you know the entirety of the new testament becomes more interesting um when you look at it in that in that kind of way of saying what's what's lurking um beneath um so yeah who were the magi to the author of matthew oh goodness i mean yeah it's in the subtitle who were they um and i think i mean ultimately i think that matthew um matthew does see them kind of in that in that uh um in that in that light of 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 people who they're not crowning Jesus, but their presence legitimates Jesus's kingship. Now, in terms of the specific identity and, and who does Matthew, if Matthew has created this story, maybe, maybe not. But if Matthew has created the story, who specifically does he think that they are? I don't really know if Matthew had that in mind. I think that Matthew is is using them as kind of a broad designation of these religious professionals, who are drawn to who are drawn to kings. And I think that Matthew is is sort of content to leave it that way, which is why he doesn't really go into any more detail.
1: Oh, that's, that's a great way to leave it. Now, yeah. you, you mentioned uh, that you've given talks on the book so far, and uh, the book's been out for something like eight or nine months now. Um, mm-hmm. What's the reception to your book been from either scholars or general audiences? Has it been the fame and fortune that you were seeking all along?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So much fame, so much fortune. Um, no, I, I will say that, um, you know, the, the goal of this book, you know, I sort of... I did go back and forth a lot when I was doing the research for this book, you know, is this going to be, you know, a monograph with, with, uh, half the pages filled with footnotes and, and that sort of thing, or is it going to be a more popular, uh, kind of trade book? And really, I mean, at the end of the day, my goal was to try to do both and to say, Mm -hmm. I want a book, I want a book that my friends and colleagues can pick up on their way back from the Society of Biblical Literature meeting, you know, say, I'm going to read this book on the plane, something that we nerds do right at the end of a conference, an academic conference, we buy a book to read on the plane. I've done it once myself, yes. Right. (laughs) But, you know, that, that, like the goal was, I want, I want this to be a book that scholars can read, that, that they can, that they can see as a book that, that, they can learn something from, they can see it as a book that uh, doesn't sacrifice any kind of scholarly integrity. But also I want this book to be one that, um, that your mom can read that, that my mom can read or whatever. And, and, and I think, so far the reception of the book has been that it does both of those things i've had plenty of biblical scholars and scholars of early christianity who have reached out and said you know this is a book that i'm gonna that i'm gonna use in class and this is a book that i'm going to also buy for my mom for (laughs) for christmas which is amazing like that's that's the dream is to is to have that so that it's accessible to a broader audience, but also useful to a specialized audience. And so the feedback that I've gotten so far is um, that that both crowds are, are enjoying it, which is which is amazing. That's a great feeling.
1: Absolutely. It's a tightrope that we, that we walk. And I think you did it very well. It's a, it's a book that's uh, useful in many different contexts from a classroom to, as you say, a gift for mom. Uh, Thank uh, you so
0: much. I appreciate that.
1: Now um, let's turn to a question that I came up with basically on my own because of my own interests uh, related to the gospel of Matthew and the dating of the the life of the historical Jesus. So you suggest that Matthew's Magi story comes basically from his own active imagination, uh, you know, if he inherits parts of the story he has certainly mm-hmm. worked with it in a mathean way as you put it you say that the slaughter of the innocents is probably a mathean creation as well and that there you know of course are elements of the story the star that are uh, that appear entirely uh, divergent from a uh, scientific understanding of how stars actually behave right uh, so if matthew is trying to convey this political message about the identity of jesus through some verisimilitude about uh, uh, historical data with Herod the Great. Do you sense at all that Herod is just a perfect literary foil for Jesus, and that's why he uses him in this way? And if so, uh, do you consider the um, contemporaneity of these two historical people as likely or unlikely? And I say, I should say I ask this because many scholars still tend to date Jesus' birth uh, with respect to the lifespan of Herod, so uh, before he dies in 4 BCE, right? Primarily on the basis of the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm just usually not convinced that this is warranted at all, given the innovative tendencies of this, right. uh, of this author
0: yeah no it's actually an interesting uh it's a great question and the you know the the question of uh, the question of their uh their contemporary you know that hold on let me back up it's it's interesting to me what you just said because we so often um, we, we teach our students and we do it. We, 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 in our scholarship, we, we emphasize, you know, uh, that these texts are not really all that interested in, um, in what actually happened. They're not all that precise when it comes to, uh, they're, they're more, they're more interested in telling a story. They're making things up, they're moving things around, they're doing all of this kind of work. But then it is kind of funny that everyone's like, but, Matthew says that Herod was still alive when Jesus is born right therefore we have to readjust you know the dating of Jesus's birth and it's like well well why yeah why do we assume why do we assume there that Matthew's like absolutely well Matthew says Herod was still alive so therefore Jesus must well, have been and, born early and Luke agrees with that yeah. too right <laughs> Right. Right. And so it's like, well, you know, but at the end of the day, we have no idea. We know when, when Herod dies, we have no idea when Jesus is born. And, um, you know, we, we sort of like, we have a guess within like a decade or so, but even then we just don't have any idea. Um, so does, does Herod serve as a perfect literary foil for, for Jesus? Um, I mean, in many ways, yes. I think that Herod is, I think that, I think that there's kind of, you know a a a conflict that Matthew is talking about is certainly not like the 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 dominant theme in the gospel but there is that sort of conflict with Rome that that you know that 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 occurs and we already talked about but i think Herod is sort of a perfect literary foil um because of his allegiance to Rome and so that that kind of i think Matthew brings him in um, yeah, in order to highlight that tension from the beginning, you know, and Herod is, uh, you know, Herod's title being you know, the King of the Judeans and then Jesus's cross at the end of the gospel, you know, when he's, when he's crucified by the Romans, um, you know, has the title, the King of the Judeans, it's the only time that that's, that that title, you know, kind of appears. And so I think Herod serves as a very convenient way to sort of um, start that story of tension with Rome, sort of the, you know, the the puppet king of the Romans. And then here's what happens to so the king of the Judeans at the hands of the Romans.
1: And uh, Jesus, of course, is the one leading a super kingdom, the kingdom of God uh, that uh, will supersede uh, uh, the, the kingdom of Rome eventually, right?
0: Right, exactly.
1: Um, so you said that eight years went into uh, this book before it uh, was published, and we tried to cover it all in an hour, but I, I'm perfectly aware that that's not really possible. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious if there's anything that you'd like to leave us with, anything surprising that you encountered in your research or your writing for this book, anything that you didn't expect to find but uh, came out as, uh, uh, um, in the course of writing the book?
0: Yeah, um I think the 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 most surprising thing, you know, something that something that I I've already mentioned, um the book, well, I mean the, really the two things that that were most surprising in in the research. Um the first of which is that kind of the political the political dynamic of the Magi story in Matthew. And that was that was one of those things that very much just kind of crystallized um, as I was as I was doing the research, as I was reading and rereading and, and whatever. And 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 that that kind of political nature of the story, which I do think is one of the book's big takeaways, um, that was a surprise, but a, a kind of welcome surprise. Right. I, I, mm-hmm. I needed to I needed to kind of discover, like, well, what is what is the contribution going to be? And I think that was very much um a, a nice surprise to come across. Um, the unpleasant surprise, which I've already mentioned is that Judeophobic um, uh, thread that runs throughout the, um, the, the history of this interpretation or the, the, the history of interpretation of this passage. And, um, that thread um, is one of the one of the surprises that I kind of found or realized was there um, relatively late. Um, you know, before I started writing the book, but also just relatively late. And I think part of that was due uh, due to a project that I'm working on right now with uh, Meredith Warren and, and Sarah Rollins. Uh, it's a, a, an edited volume called Judeophobia in the New Testament," published by Erdman's at some point, point. and that book working on that book with, with those two uh, scholars has really uh, affected, I think, what I see in texts and what I see in commentary on those texts. And so that was, that was one of those things that after I started going back through the texts that I'd researched and the traditions that I'd researched, and I started seeing that with more and more clarity to say, okay, so there is this political dynamic. And then there's also this very, very unfortunate um, reception of this text that has had Um, just disastrous consequences. And I'd like to think that I would have seen that if I hadn't been working on this book with, with Mm. Meredith and Sarah, but also I know that the the types of things we work on very much affect the way that we see other things. And so that was a, that was a surprise, I think, um, that, that was due to that interpretive lens that I've been sharpening uh, by working on that, uh, on that project.
1: Okay, wonderful. Well, um, I think both of those uh, come along, per- uh, come across perfectly well for readers both the political uh, undertones of the Magi story and also the Judeophobic uh, history of reception in early Christianity. I did want to ask uh, uh, what you're working on next, but you sort of answered that already. So I'll ask a different question. Are you done with the Magi? Have you said everything that you want to about the Magi?
0: No, I have not said everything that I want to about the Magi. Um, I think um, I've got a few, I mean, I'm sort of Magi'd out from- the moment and want to just allow the book to uh, to to do its thing for a year or so. But um, no, I have a few ideas. Um, one of the one of the things that was originally going to go into this book that didn't make it in for a number of reasons was an entire chapter on magi. Uh, iconography. And so the way that Magi appear in uh, early Christian funerary art and those sorts of things. um, And that is something that I'm very much thinking about and trying to kind of figure out some interesting things to say. Why in the world are Magi? um, why, Why are they one of the most popular characters and, in, in they seem to be one of the most popular characters in Christian funerary art. So why in the world is that?
1: Well, you, uh, you, te- we'll you tease that yeah. a little bit, uh, talking about mm-hmm. uh, catacomb appearances, uh, of yep. uh, Magi artwork. And, um, uh, yeah. that was really interesting to me as well.
0: Yeah, no. And that, and that's the, that was the funny thing. This, this chapter, this, this chapter that was going to be a chapter, um, but that didn't become a chapter ended up becoming anecdotes, uh, gotcha. scattered throughout the book. Gotcha. But, uh, but yeah, maybe at some point we'll do something with that.
1: Well, Eric, we've taken up so much of your time today, and uh, um, it was great to talk to you, and uh, uh, thank you for your work on the Magi, on Judeophobia, and the other things that you are uh, planning to cover in in the years to come, and thank you for being our guest on the New Books Network. Oh, thanks for having me. Again, uh, Dr. Vanden Eichel's book is The Magi, or The Magi, however you want to slice it, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. And it's available now from Fortress Press, wherever quality books are sold for your uh, for your mom or grandma for Christmas uh, in, in the upcoming <laughs> holiday season. Uh, I've been Rob Heaton, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for new books and biblical studies. I'll be with you again on your next download. Have a great day. Bye-bye.